0: Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Clark Chilson about his new book, Secrecy's Power, Covert Shin Buddhists in Japan and Contradictions of Concealment, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2014 as part of the Nanzan Library of Asian Religion and Culture series. This book examines secret groups of Shin practitioners, that is, true Pure Land Buddhist practitioners, from the 13th century onward but focuses primarily on the past 150 years. Although today at least 30 different lineages of secret Shin continue to operate, with a total estimated membership numbering in the tens of thousands, because they have been so successful at hiding, a technique they have perfected over a period of centuries, few scholars are even aware of their existence. Based on extensive ethnographic fieldwork that he conducted from 1998 onward, and a number of reports written by mainstream Shin monks who infiltrated these groups or researchers who befriended them, Chilson explains why certain groups concealed their doctrines and practices, and even existence, and, more importantly, reveals the long-term consequences that secrecy had on these groups. In addition, Chilson provides an in-depth theoretical introduction showing that scholarship on secrecy has too often conflated different types of secrecy, for example, esotericism and social secrecy. This is a problem that is particularly vexing in the case of Japanese religion, in which the influence of esoteric Buddhism is so pervasive. Rather than simply confining such theoretical concerns to the introduction and conclusion, Chilson skillfully weaves issues related to concealment into the fabric of each chapter, explaining how the case studies he presents illustrate this or that function or consequence of secrecy. Chilson distinguishes between two types of covert Shin groups those that went into hiding due to persecution and those in which secrecy was an integral element from their very genesis and he outlines the similarities and differences between the two while much scholarship on secrecy and religion has focused on why groups have secrets in the first place for example to avoid persecution and on secrecy's personal power for example personal authority or the power to avoid detection chilson draws our attention instead to how concealment influences the structure doctrines and practices of these groups, and to the way in which secrecy, at first a consciously wielded instrument, is eventually incorporated so thoroughly into a tradition that its power becomes structural, a force controlled by no single person but which pervades the group and becomes central to its identity. In this way, Chilson answers the question that many readers will want to ask. Why did the practice of secrecy continue in persecuted groups, once the threat of persecution had subsided on a fascinating journey that takes us from Shinran's 13th century admonition of his eldest son for claiming to possess secret teachings to a 21st century covert Shin leader who worries about the dwindling number of adherents. We hear of secret caves in southern Kyushu used for clandestine worship, dietary proscriptions of chicken and milk, punishment of covert Shin members in northeastern Japan ranging from promises to abandon covert shin to crucifixion, and a covert shin group whose members associated them with the kuyadō and became ordained tendai priests in order to deflect suspicion. In addition, through access to groups that few scholars have been granted, Chilson describes in detail many of the initiation rituals and teachings at the center of certain covert shin groups, all the while addressing the ethical dilemmas that researchers studying secret groups face. This book will be of particular interest to those researching or interested in Jodo Shinshu, that is, Japanese Pure Land Buddhism, secrecy in religion, secret societies, Edo period regulation of religious groups, modern Japanese religion, and religious identity. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'm with Clark Chilson, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Secrecy's Power. Covert Shin Buddhists in Japan and Contradictions of Concealment, uh, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2014. Clark Chilson is Associate Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, where he is also a faculty member of the Japan Studies Program and Asian Studies Center of the University Center for International Studies. Clark Chilson, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about my book. I appreciate it.
0: No, no. Pleasure's mine. So, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by just telling us a bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, how you came to the study of Japan or uh, Japanese Buddhism and religion, and um, if you might mention any important influences in your life, ac- academic advisors or whatnot.
1: Okay, okay. Sure, I was uh, born and raised in Rochester, New York. Um, and I suppose that, you know, I had a very early introduction to uh, the study of religion through my mother, who was um, very religious until I was about age 11, um, and as she was the person who raised me uh, and took me to church twice a week, uh, I suppose my real interest in religion started uh, very, very young. And, you know, She... Uh, was very adamant about having me learn the Bible. And by the time I was 11 years old, I had memorized many, many hundreds of verses of the Bible. And I remember winning an award about age 11 for memorizing over 400 verses of the Bible, mostly the New Testament. Wow. So, you know, what my mother taught me through that was, you know, really that there was this other language Uh, and other ways of thinking about the world that were both grounded in history of the past Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, could be applied to the the present. And so, although my mother moved away from the church, particularly as the the evangelical fundamentalist churches became much more um, conservative and right-wing in their politics, my mother was rather progressive, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that what she taught me, which was always important and still, you know, resonates with me is how religion can act as a resource in people's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, so, in you know, I, I, much of my relationship with religion is really this relationship of embrace and then leaving and then coming back to. Mm -hmm. So in my early life, I, you know, was very much, uh, involved in you know, religious practice and ritual and memorizing scripture. Mm. And then in my teenage years, um, You know, it was very – had no religion in my life. We never, you know, did anything religious. Mm. Um, And, you know, I really engaged in those things. Teenage boys like to engage in sports, sensual pleasures. Mm -hmm. Um, But the question, you know, never left me, which was how does one live one's life? Mm -hmm. And um, at age 18, after being in um, university for a year at Mm. at Buffalo State College – uh, I had the opportunity to go to Japan as an exchange student. I had no real interest in Japan, but you know, it, it was away from Buffalo. It could get me out of the U.S. <laughs> and um, I had the very good fortune of having Ian Reeder, um, mm-hmm. who is this very prominent scholar of contemporary Japanese religion today, but at that time, this was around 1987, at that time, he was only one or two, maybe three years from his PhD, and his career was just about to take off. Mm. And he was an instructor at Kansai Gaidai, mm. um, where I was an exchange student. And what he taught me that was, you know, was how you can engage and study religion without actually having a religious commitment to what you were studying. Mm-hmm. And you know, this this was eye opening for me that you know here was this subject of study. Um, In which, you know, you could engage with it and find things interesting, but didn't have to necessarily practice or believe it. And and Ian, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to meet him, Luke.
0: once uh, in the uh, UCAB's conference long ago, but...
1: Yeah, well, he is a... those who have a chance to meet him rarely forget him because he's a very... um, Different type of academic. He mm. he lectures with no socks on, and, <laughs> and uh, you know when everyone else is wearing a, a tie, he's wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> so he kind of you know struck me. He had this very important influence of you know you could really um, study religion in a different way. Mm. Um, and so that's when I was nineteen, mm-hmm. and then I decided to uh, to stay in Japan and actually did my undergraduate work uh, at Nanzan University in anthropology. Mm. And there I uh, studied mostly with um, a man from Switzerland, a, a professor by the name of Peter Kinnett, uh who was uh, – who is a Catholic priest and also someone who has a very encyclopedic knowledge about Japan and Japanese folk religion. Hmm. Uh, and what he taught me again was another way of thinking about how we can engage with the study of religion, which is, here was a man who was a Catholic priest who was very committed to to the Catholic Church, yet he could study uh, Japanese folk Buddhism uh, in in a way that was again revealing and, and not based on on a religious commitment. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that those three different very important people in my life showed me that there's these different ways to engage with the study of religion, and each of them can be nourishing and revealing in their own way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and when I went to Japan and I was living in Japan, I think the other thing that really made me interested in Buddhism was this disconnect between the way Buddhism is often talked about in the English language media in North America as being about meditation and mm-hmm more recently mindfulness, and then you go to Japan or pretty much anywhere else in East Asia, and you find that, you know, most people don't meditate, that, you know, Buddhism is really more about, um, this worldly problems, and people are more interested in ritual than doctrine, mm-hmm. and that, you know, the humanness of the Buddhism in Japan, where it's interest in very earthy things, mm. um... It really fascinated me, and was much mm-hmm. more interesting to me than the intellectualized um, Buddhism that we often find in the mm-hmm. popular press.
0: Right. So, mm. yeah. I see. So, um, I see, uh, and um, so going on from that, how did you come to focus specifically on covert shin? Uh, you mentioned in the book that your initial intention was to st- study Kuya, the uh, 10th-century sort of wandering holy man who actually adorns the cover of your book. Um, so, how did this shift occur, um, uh, or how did you come to focus on covert shin? And did your and for our listeners who haven't read the book, I should mention on the one hand, covert shin is the focus of the book, but also secrecy. Uh, the topic of secrecy is the theme that runs throughout, and the one that you uh, explore in great depth throughout the book. Um, so, was your, uh, did your interest in secrecy in religion precede your interest in covert shin, or was your focus on the issue of secrecy a natural result of studying covert shin?
1: Mm. So, yes, as you mentioned, I, I was initially interested in, in doing history of Buddhism, particularly history of folk Buddhism in, in Japan, and I had written you know, my MA thesis on uh, a biography of of Kuya Mm. and, you know, in going back to this theme of, you know, embracing leaving and, and coming back in a different way, you know, after, um, I left Kansai Gaidai, you know, I had, um, I studied, um, religion, anthropological studies of religion at Nanzan. And then I went to the UK and studied with, with Michael Pye at Lancaster university. Mm. And then, uh, Ian Reader had also returned to to the UK, and so I started actually doing my PhD under his guidance. Mm. Um, so my f- my first instructor in, in in Japanese religion and my last in a formal context was Ian Reader. Mm. And um, I- Ian was very you know interested in in, in contemporary things, mm-hmm. and you know the, his his influence. You know, on me was was really profound, and and so when I was working on Kuya, I was looking at Kuya uh, both in the historical and contemporary context, and stumbled across across uh, a group of people who had a relationship with Kuya that you know I I wasn't quite sure of. Mm-hmm. So there's these statues of Kuya, uh, one of which is on the cover of the book, mm-hmm. in which Kuya has this. These images of little men like figures coming out of his mouth, and they're little bodhisattvas, each representing one of the syllables of the nembutsu. So, mm-hmm. namu amida butsu. So, there's the six there. Mm. And art historians have, have taken a real interest in these, and so they've documented where each one of these are. Mm. And these people told me that they had a similar image. In, a, in an area of the country where no art historian had mentioned there being one. Mm. And so I was very eager to see it. I thought I'd made a real discovery for art historians. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were not too eager to show it to me. Mm-hmm. And so I found this odd that, you know, here were these people who were interested in Kuya. They were at this Kuya memorial service in mm-hmm. Kyoto where I met them. They live nowhere near Kyoto. And I I asked them to visit. And they said – basically they said no, and I kept asking in kind of a slightly aggressive, slightly obsequious <laughs> way. And eventually they had a, a group of older men had a conversation, and um, the one of the men gave me a phone number and some very basic directions and said, call, and we'll set up a time. Mm-hmm. So I called, and they gave me a time Uh, in a place where I could go see them. And when I got there, I was basically interviewed by them, my interests. And I said my interests were in Kuya, and I was very interested in their their place here because they had this Kuya statue. And the elder man who was introduced as the Zenchiski, or the leader of the group, he said, well, you know, Kuya is important, but we're really interested in Shin." you know, this pure, pure land Buddhism, mm-hmm. Shin pure land Buddhism of Shinlan. And I thought, oh, so I told him a little bit about what I knew about, you know, Shin pure land Buddhism. And and he said, yes, yes, but we're, we're most interested in the real Shin Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And that began a conversation which gradually leaked out that, you know, they felt that there was this, shin tradition and they believed in the shin tradition and they practiced the shin tradition which they said was handed down in secret from the founder of of shin buddhism shinran and this really fascinated me because i had never heard of these people Mm -hmm. and when i did a little investigation everything pointed to that yes at one time in the 18th century they were quite active but they didn't survive Mm-hmm. Into the modern period, yes. So, lastly, I you know I, before I really started to study these these the covert shin Buddhists, I had been at a Buddhist studies conference, and I mentioned to a prominent scholar of contemporary Buddhism in Japan um, or modern Buddhism in Japan, Hayashi Makoto, and he said, mm-hmm. "Clark, if you came across these people, you need to study them because there's <laughs> you know this would be quite a find." Yeah. And then Peter Knetz, who I also consulted, you know, he had pointed me to the direction of of similar types of groups that were active in uh, the Tohoku region, mm. which were still secretive that some people had published on. So right. it was really this this rare opportunity to study a, uh, a a secret group who I'd come across totally by accident, right, and who were. Seem to to be willing to talk with me.
0: Mm, I see. So 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 in in the um in in the preface you describe a uh, before we get on to the actual covert shin groups themselves in the preface you describe a shift in your approach to the topic of covert shin and the issue of secrecy whereby you you stopped focusing exclusively on why certain practices were secret or why certain groups operated in secret and turn your attention instead to consequences, that is, what are the results of having secret practices and operating secretly, um, or what are the consequences and functions of secrecy rather than why does secrecy occur in the first place. So what you find is that, um, uh, first, secrecy separates, creating both social and conceptual distance, and second, that secrecy has many unintended consequences, both positive and negative, for the people being secretive, um, or the people doing the concealing. So uh, I was just wondering if you could mention how the shift came about. Uh, was it that you, was this through reading scholarship on secrecy and religion outside of Japan or through a re- realization that the question of secrecy's origins wasn't as important or interesting?
1: Well, it came about really through my engagement with, you know, doing field work with people, with the covert Shin Buddhists. And mm-hmm. I started out. Looking at you know why they were secretive, you know why why hide your religion? Yeah, because they weren't just esoteric; they were actually concealing their very existence from the public. They didn't want the public to know they existed. They didn't want the public to to know where they met. They didn't want the public to to know what their rituals were or who they were. And so I was curious in the beginning as to you know why they would want to do this. At a time when they were not in danger of persecution, mm-hmm. freedom of religion in Japan, and so why why remain secret? Um, and so you know, during my doctoral dissertation, I focused primarily on on that and some of the benefits that they got from secrecy I see. throughout time and continued today. Right. Then you know, I I, it, I felt at some point in my field work that I needed to. Uh, to be a little bit more upfront with with uh, the people I was doing field work with, mm-hmm. they had invited me to become initiated, and I declined for some ethical reasons i didn 't think it would be right mm-hmm. uh, uh, but you know I was reading and finding these historical documents about things that they were saying, and I was finding you know very minor publications done in house by uh, Shin Buddhist priests that were basically revealing, you know, a lot of the secrets that they had discovered through covert action of their own. They infiltrated right. these groups.
0: These are these, and, are these are Shin Pure Land priests from the sort of mainstream uh, Shin Buddhist institutions.
1: Correct right. that regard these covert Shin Buddhists as heretics, and so they would go in and uh, you know either find some connection or try to find some connection through their their temples and 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 then expose you know expose them Mm -hmm. Um, particularly early 20th century when they were becoming when they were growing fairly rapidly for a short period
0: I see
1: so and so the 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 long and the short of it is is I actually knew more of their secrets than they were actually telling me I see (laughs) but I but they kept saying you know this is you know you know, all this, no one knows about this, no one knows about that. And I was happy to go along with, you know, letting them believe that for a while. Mm-hmm. And, but eventually I felt I need to, to show them some of the things that I had found to let them know, you know, actually what I had, what I knew. Right. And so when I showed the leader this, he was, he was quite disturbed at first um, you know, he said, oh, this should never happen. He had heard that these kind of things had happened, but he never actually had seen it. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, you know, we're told we should, you know, slit our stomachs before revealing this type of thing. And, yeah. but after a while, you know, it wasn't that long, maybe a half hour or so he had, he had kind of digested what, you know, he had just, I just showed him and, you know, and he pointed out that you know this wasn't actually right; that there was a number of errors in some of the things that I was showing him, and mm. and, and you know, he was less disturbed about it than 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 um, than I thought, and and I, so that made me think, okay, well, why why does the publication of some of these secrets not make that much difference to him? Mm. Uh, why didn't it scandalize him more? Right. And to answer that question, I really needed to think about, you know, well, what does secrecy do? What does it do for them? What does it do to them? Yeah. Um, And so that got me thinking about the consequences of secrecy. And what I discovered that I think is important is that secrecy has multiple consequences and that these consequences actually conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know… Six of these consequences that I deal with in the book most extensively that contradict each other or conflict with each other are the, the consequence of persecution mm-hmm. versus the consequence of protection. Yeah. And the consequence of, you know, helping, secrecy helps preserve a tradition, but it also leads to its transformation. Yeah. Secrecy creates dilemmas which make it difficult to know what to do, but then it also Gives order, which makes it very clear about what one should do, and so when I when I started to, to, to see these consequences and how they were opposed to each other and how covert organizations really had to negotiate um, the, these these consequences. Then secrecy became much more interesting for me because Mm -hmm. it wasn't just secrecy. People are secretive because of X or people are secretive because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Typically when you read about secrecy, you, you read that, oh, people are secretive because they're hiding something they don't want the public to know that's nefarious or bad. Right. Or they're hiding because they're trying to get authority to themselves and just trying to lure people in. Right. And so typically when you read about secrecy, it's that secrecy does something for these people, and that's why they're secret. Yeah. And what I found is that actually secrecy does a number of things, both for and to secretive groups. And mm-hmm. to understand secrecy's power and to understand secretive organizations, we really have to look at how uh, those consequences come about and how they are negotiated in differently in different social contexts. Yeah. So this
0: sort of links to, this uh, connects to a uh, uh, distinction you make in the introduction between secrecy's personal power and secrecy's sort of impersonal or structural power. Um, uh, and you you note that scholarship on secrecy has often focused primarily on the uh, personal power that could be created through secrecy As you just mentioned. It sort of does something for a person.
1: Correct, yeah.
0: Um, so... Uh, moving on a little bit, just um, – so you, in the introduction, you set this uh, – you kind of set the theoretical framework for the book, um, the theoretical framework in which you want readers to understand covert shin. And you have this – kind of set up a loose dichotomy between the mainstream shin Buddhism, what you call overt shin for the purposes of the book, and a number of secret shin groups that try to hide their very existence, what you call covert shin. Mm. Um So now besides this uh, distinction between uh, personal power and sort of structural power, um, you also make a distinction between esoteric and social secrecy, um, two categories that are separate but that in actual practice often um, are often found together. And I wanted you just to mention what this distinction is because I think it's particularly important in this case because I think a lot of people – a lot of – um, when they think about secrecy in Japanese religion, and particularly Buddhism, they'll immediately think about esoteric Buddhism.
1: Right. So one of the things I learned from doing this research and giving presentations on it before I wrote the book was how confusing uh, the word secrecy can actually be. Mm. Uh, w- w- when I talk about secrecy, I'm typically talking about social secrecy, but much of my audience, because I'm speaking about secrecy in Buddhism would assume that I would somehow be talking about esotericism and trying to connect this with esoteric Buddhism and the different strains of esoteric Buddhism. Um, So what I really tried to do in the introduction, one of the two things I really tried to do in the introductory chapter was to explain that there's these different basic types of secrecy in religion Mm. and that we really need to be clear what type of secrecy we're talking about when we talk about secrecy in religion because if these types of secrecy are confused then this will uh, result in poor comparative work mm-hmm. uh, and theoretical confusion. Mm-hmm. So I point out in the introduction that there's three types, basic types of secrecy that we find in religion. One is mystery uh, in which you know the divine keeps secrets that uh, is not revealed mm-hmm. uh except through mystical experience uh, and then we have esoteric secrecy, which, like mystery, is also hidden by the divine or something that if not the divine then some some ultimate truth that transcends the social world, so the truth that esoteric secrets Purport to hold is not contingent upon the social world. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's, it's 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 an ultimate truth that would transcend history. Um, and but this true is typically hid by something beyond the, just the social world. Yeah. But it can be discovered if one is gets the proper training, uh, either through through ritual or through certain hermeneutical training. Yeah. Where social secrecy, what is being hidden is not some ultimate truth, but these are conventional things. Mm -hmm. And these are the divine or something that transcends the social world is not hiding it from people the way it would be in mystery and esotericism, Mm -hmm. but social secrecy is really when people hide things from other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we talk about secrecy in religion, we need to be clear what type of secrecy we're talking about. Otherwise, we can confuse the categories and this can have bad consequences. Right. So I, I try to give the example, the analogy of love mm-hmm. as being similar where you know people talk about they love something or someone. So I love my wife. I love my husband. I love my children. I love baseball. Uh-huh. Um, and if we treat all these types of love as if they were the same thing, this would great confusion, as it, right. I think it does in English. So mm-hmm. just like there's the agape type of love, which is a, a non-erotic, uh, self-giving type of love, and then you have the eros, which is a different type of more romantic love,
0: right.
1: we want to make sure we don't confuse those categories when we're talking about love. And when we're talking about secrecy, we also don't want to confuse categories because mm-hmm. this can cause confusion.
0: yeah. yeah. So 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 to give an example like the eso, the esoteric um, you know you could take a scripture like the lotus sutra and it's not that it's not uh, there's no social secrecy there because it's not hidden from any one but there's an esoteric secrecy there can be an in certain interpretations there could be an esoteric secrecy which is the sort of hidden meaning behind the what one sort of reads on the surface
1: Correct. And I think it becomes a little bit confusing in the history of Japanese Buddhism because you often see esotericism and social secrecy overlapping.
0: Right. Okay.
1: In that you have a text that um, will give the esoteric real – meaning of, for example, the Lotus Sutra. Mm-hmm. It will reveal the real meaning of the Lotus Sutra, the ultimate meaning of the Lotus Sutra. And then that text, which is a, as a, a text that gives this interpretation, this esoteric interpretation, mm. that text then is then hidden by people mm. from other people. So then you have, you know, the text being part of social secrecy – right? But the content of its the text itself is really about esoteric secrets, yeah, so when we look at the history of Japanese Buddhism, where this was quite common, where social secrecy would be used to hide certain esoteric doctrines, certain esoteric texts, certain esoteric rituals um, it's really important to to distinguish you know when is there social secrecy going on mm-hmm. and when is there e- and how is that distinctive from the esoteric secrecy? So we can understand how the two relate to each other mm. um, right. better.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. So, um, so moving on, um, you note that we know of uh, at least thirty covert Shin, Pure Land Buddhist groups, but that they're generally sort of divided into these three groups. The and correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's a, the sort of northeastern Japan, the Tohoku group the southern Kyushu group and then another group that's um, sort of throughout central Japan, but which was generally chased, traced back to medieval Shin groups that were thought to be heretical at the time.
1: Correct. That's how uh, Hong Ganji are the the main mainstream uh, Shin Buddhist institutions. That's how they um, have divided up covert Shin Buddhists.
0: Yeah. And, and then in this book specifically, you, um, discuss, main, you explicitly discuss uh, three groups, the Gonaiho group in the northeast, um, uh, specifically after the mid-19th century, the Kirishimako group in southern Kyushu from, right. I think, the mid-17th or century on, and right. then the Urahomon in central Japan, which is, uh, you discuss the most, and which is the uh, least um, known in, in the secondary sources that do exist. Um so, so, moving on into chapter one, you here you provide a reader with an overview of secrecy in Shin Buddhism, noting that overt Shin has generally insisted that there are no secret teachings in Shin. And Shinran in the 13th century and Renyo in the 15th century said as much. And it seems their statements to this effect have been cited as a scriptural basis by Shin clerics who have spoken out against covert uh, Shin. But you want to argue that although this may be true, secrecy, secrecy does in fact have a place within uh, certain Sheen traditions. And in this chapter, you um, you give examples in which secrecy led to criticism and persecution, while, while in the following chapter, you give an example in which secrecy protected but also transformed traditions. So, so, so these are some of the unintended consequences that you're talking about. So would you just start us off here by describing attitudes towards secrecy in medieval Japan and in the Edo period, noting how these attitudes affected and shaped covert shin? And for um, listeners not familiar with Japanese periodization, Edo period is roughly 1600, 1603
1: to 1868. So first, you know, let me clarify you know, the types of covert shin. I think it's simpler if we look at two types of covert Shin, and that is one type which secrecy is intrinsic to the group from its origins. They Mm -hmm. believe that Shinlan um, uh, from the 13th century had given a secret tradition, and that they are the uh, holders and preservers and transmitters of that teaching. Mm -hmm. So that's one type that has the intrinsic secrecy. And then you have the one of the groups in southern Kyushu, which became secret as a response to persecution. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably a simpler way to try to divide them up. Right. And in the first chapter, I'm looking primarily at the history of these groups that claim to have a secret tradition that was given to them by Shinnan. Uh, and passed on through through generations among the laity.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So the attitudes toward secrecy in Japan has changed very much from medieval period to the early modern period. So in the 13th, 14th, and 15th century, secrecy was very common amongst almost all religious organizations – buddhist organization buddhist lineages very much often split themselves up based on you know their different secretive traditions and mm. having something revealed in secrecy was very common and you know different lineages of you know the performing arts or the the visual arts they would also have their secret traditions and these were passed on from master to disciple so secrecy was considered to be very important in medieval Japan for having authority and that it was really you know the master giving secrets to the disciple that legitimated um, who they were mm. and their ability to, to practice and teach and to transmit. Mm-hmm. In the 16th and 17th century, when Confucianism becomes prominent uh, and a prominent ideology, secrecy is really held in, in, in question. Mm. And so we find that the type of authority that could be gotten from secrecy in the medieval period is not the case when we get into the eighteenth seventeenth eighteenth century mm. so the attitudes amongst you know Shin Buddhists was towards secrecy was slightly different in that. It didn 't use secrecy the way most social organizations did in the medieval period to, to give legitimation and authority, but until the time of the 15th century, until Lenyo, who was a major Shin leader, mm-hmm. until that time you know they weren't that concerned with secretive organizations; they saw them as heretical, but they weren't really interested in too much persecution of them. Mm-hmm. But around, the, but in the 15th century, Lenyo becomes very concerned that they're spreading heresy and he has these dramatic statements, some of which I've included in the book, in which he mm-hmm. says, anybody who accepts these secret teachings will go to hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, and so the, the attitudes towards secrecy in Shin has been pretty negative for for a long time and certainly much longer than it's been in other Buddhist traditions. Mm-hmm. But in the Edo period when when the attitudes towards secrecy were very negative wide across the board, um, then there was much more. Uh, severe persecution of shin buddhists Mm. so now you actually got the government involved you have shin priest getting the government involved trying to find out who these people are trying to find out where they meet trying to find out what they do exposing them punishing them through sending them into exile leaders in exile and in some cases even having them executed Mm. Um, so we really see that there's secrecy during their history, was not doing much for them because it led to this persecution, and this persecution became particularly heavy um, in, in the 18th uh, and 19th century. Mm. Um, so, yeah. this is, I think, an important point to, to remember when we think about secrecy: is that it often does lead to persecution because people think there's something improper, uh, and I think this is very much alive and well today in North America you know, if you have to hide it, then there must be something wrong. Sure, sure. Um,
0: right. So. so the sort of, the, the secrecy and the relative orthodoxy or heterodoxy of a particular group is, are in a sense two separate issues, but I suppose when a group is secrecy, the assumption um, in Edo period, Japan at least, is that they're sort of doing something that's either religiously heterodox or um, or something that's um, politically subversive, I suppose.
1: Yes. I mean, the very idea that you would have a secret is in, from the 17th century on becomes one that's very suspect. Right. And continues, continues today. So, you know, they were not secretive because they were persecuted. They were persecuted because they were secretive.
0: Yeah, right. And- so, right. So which, well, that actually leads us to this, the the group you focused on in Chapter 2, um, actually, which uh, is a group in southern southern Kyushu, the uh, Kirishimako, which was active from the early or the mid-17th century. And you note, you note that this group faced intense hostility as the Shimizu, the ruling family of Satsuma, had uh, persecuted Shin Buddhism from at least the late 15th century. Um, so could you just first tell listeners, I mean, who were the Kirishimako?
1: Okay. So, let me give a little background to explain the Kirishimako um, that is surprisingly unknown, even amongst experts on Japan. And that is in the Satsumahan, which was one of the largest, most powerful uh, feudal um, domains in Japan during the Edo period. So, from the you know particularly during the 17th, 18th, 19th century, mm-hmm. they did not allow anyone to be a Shin Pure Land Buddhist. Mm-hmm. They had actually prohibited and banned Shin Buddhism. And if you were caught to be a Shin Buddhist, you would be punished sometimes very severely.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So like the secret of Christians, Christianity was also banned during this time throughout Japan those who remained in the tradition went underground. They had to hide their tradition to avoid punishment. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So different than the groups, you know, the the groups we discussed in the first chapter, Mm -hmm. which were, you know, secretive and then persecuted. Right. These were groups that were uh, perfectly fine, but then had to become secrecy, secretive to avoid persecution. Mm. And, so s- tiny groups of people uh, continue to practice uh, continue to practice Shin Buddhism, a very orthodox type of Shin Buddhism, in the beginning at least, mm-hmm. in secrecy so they would not be persecuted, and they you know they would they would meet in caves, and we actually have um, in southern Kyushu today uh, historians have preserved some of the the uh, the caves in which they met. They actually went underground literally they dug holes in the side of the you know the side of uh hills or in mm. the ground and they would create chambers underground in which they would go into and have their worship ceremonies or they would go out in boats and have them and so there was lots of these different little groups mm. in, in in hiding and you know some of them probably died out and some of them survived and one of them that survived was a group called the kirishimako
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they st- apparently started out as uh, a rather typical group of Shin Buddhists, and we know this because of you know uh, their their mythology is makes Amida Buddha Amida Buddha central. Uh, they read Shinran and as scripture; those are central scriptures to them. They celebrate the the, the death dates of. Uh, Shinnan and Nenyo, mm. so we we see that you know that there's central Shin elements here, mm-hmm. but to hide their 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 practice of Shin Buddhism, they uh, affiliated themselves with a mountain in the area called Kirishima, mm-hmm. which was very famous as a holy place and typically connected with Shinto, not Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So they they presented themselves as a lay organization that were worship that were devotees of Kirishima, Shinto. And they used this to to hide um their pure land practices. Mm.
0: Yeah. Um I should mention I, I should mention here that uh for people who or listeners who don't have the book yet, you have some very nice pictures in here of some of the. Um, well, you have one of one of the caves that um, Covert Shin Buddhists built, and also some of the um, hollowed-out pillars that were used to hide icons, and right. also one of the uh, stones that was used to torture um, uh, Covert Sheen adherents if they were found. Right. So, uh, picking up on where you left off, th- that um, so. So, 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 in this in this case, they sort of um, associate themselves with the mountain Kirish, with uh, Mount Kirishima and the sort of Kirishima Shinto in order to um, basically... Th- so it starts out as uh, what you call dissimulation,
1: right,
0: right. Um, and then, uh, but you argue that um, in fact this incorporation although it started off as a sort of conscious strategy to evade uh, detection, to, to avoid detection, that eventually it becomes um, integrated into the group's identity. Correct. Um, okay. So, um, so, so how look, do, yes, look, please.
1: This might be a good time to explain a little bit about uh, personal power and structural power, because I think sure. what you just... Delineated there is is helpful for trying to understand how the two, what the two are and how they relate to each other. So, you know, personal power is really about um, getting um, power to get people to do things in a particular way. Mm. Um, So, you know, you can get them to do something for you or you can uh, control their perceptions or control how they think of you or control what they do for you. And so, secrecy, in this particular case with the Kirishimiko, it has this personal power in the sense that, you know, it, it controls the way other people perceive who they are. Mm-hmm. And so, they're, they're actively using it for their own personal gain, for their own, for the gain of their own organization that they won't be persecuted. Mm-hmm. But it also comes to take on structural power, and this is the power that is not limited to any particular person. Mm-hmm. This is power that would transcend any person or group of people and it's the power that we find of tradition of linguistic conventions Mm -hmm. um, in which you know these are things that influence the way people act and behave but yet no one actually controls them or sets them into place Mm -hmm. and so structural secrecy has structural power uh, once it becomes very much part of an organization Mm -hmm. and so in Kirishimiko you know, secrecy becomes part of their identity, and it is, you know, by the 19th century, it is being referred to as sacred, and therefore any revealing of secrets to outsiders becomes a grave um, taboo, mm. which, you know, they said would lead to rebirth in hell. Mm. Um, so it becomes, yes, it becomes part of their identity, and when it becomes part of their identity – then it really takes on not just a personal power, but then it takes on a structural power. Mm-hmm. And it's because secrecy has structural power that it's really hard to to negotiate some of the, the conflicting consequences of secrecy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, people say, well, if they're persecuted because they're secretive, why don't they just come out and stop being secretive? Why don't they just be open? Right. I mean, this would solve their problem, wouldn't it? Right. And then the response is, well, there's this, you know, once it becomes part of who they are, right. once it becomes a, a, a method for, for giving structure to the religion, you can't just – there's no way you can – by coming out in the open would, would – is really an option without radically changing the religion as a whole.
0: Right. Yeah. Which wouldn't have been true in the very beginning if they'd only been secret for a very short while.
1: With the Kitishimako, yes. With any right. group that goes into hiding to protect themselves, right? Right.
0: Okay. So, um, so the the chapter one, chapter two uh, uh, constitute the first part of the book, and the second part of the book, um, comprising chapters three, four, and five, focuses on the Uda which is the group with which you have had the most contact, and which uh, constitutes the central case study of the book, in a sense. Um, and you also note that this is the group that's been most neglected in secondary scholarship, though, of course, there's not much secondary scholarship anyway on any of the right. covert sheen right. groups. Um, could you um, could you just uh, maybe just very briefly mention what or who the Udahomon are?
1: Okay. So Udahomon are, are one lineage of which there's probably... N- you know, at least several and maybe dozens of lineages in central Japan. Mm. Um, there's at least 30 lineages throughout Japan that we know that are covert Shin Buddhists of the intrinsic secrecy type. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this is one of those lineages in central Japan. Mm-hmm. And they call themselves Urahomon uh, because they believe that they carry on uh, a secretive ultimate teaching of shinran mm-hmm. the term uda in japanese would mean the backside of something or something that is undercover um so something not seen would be uda mm-hmm. and Urahomon would would be the secret teaching so the hormone could be the dharma or the secret the secret the the um the hormone being, you know, the dharma or teachings, and uda being secret. So, this is a name that they sometimes refer to themselves as. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're a lineage made up of today, you know, I'm going to say about seven or eight major leaders who each have uh, groups that they lead. Um, typically, they'll meet. You know, today they might meet in groups of twenty to forty uh, at people's homes, mm. often at the leaders' homes, mm-hmm. um, or or somewhere else hidden from the public. Um, and many of the men who are the leaders of these groups are are wealthy, um, so they are able to support them, um, live in nice, sized houses, which allow for these types of meetings. Mm.
0: Um, Okay, so so so, um, so 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 in these three chapters on udahomone, in the in the first chapter, chapter three, you um, you basically um, well, this goes back to the introduction in which you identify three strategies often used by covert groups to hide, uh, which you identify as limiting visibility, dissimulation, and then just silence, complete silence. And right. in chapter three, you discuss. Um, one particular branch of the Uda uh one particular branch's use of dissimulation. So could you just say what dissimulation is and um, why this particular, the founder of this branch, a man named Ono, turned to dissimulation in this case and what that entailed?
1: Sure. So the dissimulation, what I mean is when someone pretends to be something that they actually... Do um, not primarily identify with.
0: So like the kiri, uh, Ko with the Kirishima Mountain Shinto.
1: Exactly. Right. So in other words, they don't, you know, when they meet together, they may see themselves as being Shin Buddhist, uh, but when they're out in public, they would present themselves as Kirishimako. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you, so,
0: and you also mentioned the, uh, like, the crypto Jews and crypto Muslims in 16th century Spain as examples
1: yeah they also do this, you know so you know they might go to you know crypto jews might go to a uh, might have went to a Catholic church and lit candles on sabbath and
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, you know even in certain cases even uh would keep pigs as a way of indicating we really aren 't Jewish. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah this is and you know the secret of Christians. this in in Japan as well. So this is a fairly common strategy Mm -hmm. that covert organizations use. I mean, for example, in the CIA, you know, reporters, for example, are often, you know, people who are actually working for the the CIA. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is why, you know, when reporters are are arrested somewhere, um, you know, the intelligence community uh, typically denies that they're they're right. working for the CIA, but so they're you know you're basically it's presenting yourself as something that you're really not. Yeah. Um, and so the case of of Udo Homon, Ono, the 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 leader in the late 19th early 20th century, he had a problem, and that problem was, you know, he was getting a lot of people who were interested in what he was saying, and so he had a lot of people appearing at his home. And this looked quite strange to the neighbors and and the local law enforcement. Mm. And he decided that um, he needed to connect himself with some religious institution. And the oral tradition is – I've never been able to find documentary proof of this – but the oral tradition is is that he went to a number of different places uh, asking for affiliation. And they all wanted him to go through – certain types of training which he didn't want to go through mm. until he came to this rather unusual temple called the Kuyado in Kyoto, um, which had a very small lineage in the Edo period. It was related to both to the imperial family and to outcast groups. Um, and when he approached them... Um, they were receptive, and we do have documentation of their giving him a religious affiliation mm. in the late 1880s. So, so basically, he he then started to present his organization as a lay uh, group that was devoted that was devoted to Kuya and that was part of the Kuya Do lineage.
0: Mm.
1: And so, this you know kept him and his. Disciples from uh, being investigated for what they were really doing, and central to the Shin Buddhist tradition is the recitation of Amida's name, so the Nembutsu, mm-hmm. and this was also very central to the Kuya Do. So it wasn't a big leap, mm. um, and you know that that relationship has been strained over the past hundred years. It's very strained today. Um, mm. You know. Uh, but it it continues among certain uh, groups. Um, you know the the current priest of the Kuya-do, I don't know how much he knows about these people. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, currently a professor at Kyoto, Kyoto University in agriculture. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, the relationship is not what it was fifty, right. sixty years ago. Yeah.
0: So, so basically, um, the Ono branch of the Uda Homon Covert Shin Buddhists. Um, when people um, become leaders or Zenshishiki within that branch, they actually go, they technically become priests of the Kuyado. so technically they're Tendai priests. Um, uh, yes, even though for all practical purposes they're they don't incorporate um, Tendai ritual or doctrine explicitly into their tradition.
1: Correct. Yes. So I mean, they they very clearly say, you know, this we do this for the omote. We do this as a facade, mm-hmm. um, you know. And you know, uh, there's there's advantages for doing it. You know, when they bought property, in one case they brought they bought a property in which they, they built something, and they were able to buy that property without having to pay taxes for it. So there certain advantages that they get from being affiliated with the Kuya do, um that they want to maintain uh, even today. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, we're getting closer to the end, but I, I did want you, um, I wanted to ask if you could just address, address uh, um, the dilemma that you talk about in chapter four, one of the dilemmas that results from secrecy, namely uh, when to reveal, when to conceal. And you mentioned two situations in which this dilemma arises for the Udahomon. homo, um, uh, in proselytizing um, and uh, um, cases of persecution, and, and cases yeah. of persecution right? Yeah. Um, where they're being sort of misrepresented in the media or by other groups. Hmm. Could you just mention sort of these two dilemmas and how Uda Hormone has gone about dealing with these dilemmas that are basically the result of being secretive?
1: Right. Right. So, covert. Cool Organizations that want to persist over time, as covert religious organizations do, they face an inherent dilemma, which is, you know, you, to tell a secret, you um, would no longer the secret would no longer be a secret if if it's revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't tell the secret, if you don't reveal the secret, then the secret will die. Mm-hmm. Um, so which would go against the desire to keep the secret alive. So you have this tension between revealing and concealing, which needs to be negotiated. And this is important when you're proselytizing to new people. So typically the way covert secretive religions do this is they they pass it on from generation to generation, Mm -hmm. and this is pretty safe uh, because it's in the family and people are – considered less likely to betray family. right? But when you go outside the, you know, kinship relationships and you proselytize to friends and neighbors, which does happen in Udo Homo, then you really have to be careful. So the, the dilemma is, you know, how can you reveal and... Typically, I think the answer is that you know you need to have a balance between revealing and concealing, and what I found is is that it 's not a balance. What happens is is all the authority is given to one person
0: mm-hmm. about
1: who can reveal and conceal who can reveal mm. um, and that 's how they solve, they attempt to solve this dilemma uh, is by saying nobody can reveal or proselytize. And tell the secrets, except for the leader, yeah. you can bring people to the leader, but he's the only one that can can do it, and so that 's how they try to deal with that dilemma mm-hmm. and then, in cases of persecution, again, you know they could be persecuted like after the om incident, right you know, are they doing something that's going to be dangerous to society um, and you know so you had police getting really interested in 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 marginal religious activities. And so really scrutinizing yeah. local villages. And so at that time, some groups came out and said, listen, you know, this is what we're doing mm-hmm. uh, to a certain degree. But- so, sorry to interrupt.
0: I should, if for listeners who aren't familiar with the OM affair that you refer to as the 1995 uh, Sardin gas attacks on the Tokyo subways by a new religious group called OM Shinrikyo, I think. Yes. And, yes. Um, right. And in fact, uh, two years ago, there was that uh, special issue of the Japanese Journal of Religious Studies that sort of focused on the the way that the Oma Fairs affected uh, new religions. Well, not just new religions, but I guess new, mainly new religions and secretive religions in Japan. Right, right. But you mentioned in the case of Urahomo, and a lot of, um, even after the Oma fair, a lot of groups that sort of continued to... Um, I mean, it hasn't affected to them too adversely. It sounds like
1: no I mean I think that in in some cases the leaders decided not to say anything mm-hmm. and, and and in a, in some cases, some leaders went to the police and gave a little bit of description of what they were doing yeah um, and but the long and the short of it is that no, it didn't make a huge difference um, and I think in part because the the as many secretive organizations, the covert shin buddhists are very much cell organizations, mm. which means they're very small, pocketed organizations, which are very, which don't have networks, which they're involved with beyond themselves. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about very small groups, and particularly of older people, mm-hmm. which many of the covert shin buddhists are, they were less of a concern.
0: I see, right. So um, I think we're um, getting to the end uh, for uh, we still haven't. Uh, just for um, uh, our listeners, the, in chapter five, you focus on Uda um, teachings and initiation rites, and, um, and uh, what those. In, and you go into very interesting, uh, quite fascinating detail uh, as to what's exactly involved in those. Um, talking about some of the sacred texts that are used, and also what the initiation rites uh, sort of achieve for the initiates, but. Uh, Moving on to our last question, I just wanted to, uh, before we sign off, I wanted to ask uh, what you're working on now or if you have any projects in the works at the moment.
1: Sure, yeah. Well, one thing I'm working on is is Nikon. This is really where my focus is today. Nikon is a contemplative practice that came out of Shin Buddhism that has also been used for psychotherapeutic purposes, Mm. And it really focuses on people getting to look at their lives in a contemplative setting. And they were originally the connection with Secret of Shin is that the founder these were these contemplative practices were originally done in secret. But today Nikon is practiced in about forty hospitals and hmm. it's quite widespread in, in, in Japan. Um, and you know, I hope um, for those who have a chance and willingness to read the book, I hope one of the things besides secrecy that people learn about is really that, you know, Shin Buddhism is a very, very diverse and rich con- tradition mm-hmm. that's very contested, and we really don't get that from most of the introductory texts, yeah. uh, simple introductory texts, of just how rich and diverse Shin Buddhism actually is. Right. And Nikon is one aspect of, of that richness.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, we'll look forward to uh, seeing... Um Seen some uh, your next book on on that. Thank you. And um, well, thanks very much for speaking with me today, and uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And that's it for today's new books in Buddhist studies. See you next time.